Welcome to Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church. This is episode three in a series examining the impact that Christianity has had on history and culture. Today we go even further in our examination of the sanctity of life that's been the focus of the previous two episodes. But today we look at it specifically in Christianity's regard for the sanctity of sex. And as we begin, I want to pause to say that what we're going to look at today may offend the sensibilities of some of our more secular and or liberally minded listeners. The redefinition of gender that's become a hot topic of late has split the church, as well as the wider culture. It's not my intent here to develop a theology of gender, merely to give an accurate, albeit summary, review of sexual ethics in church history. So summary are the following comments that they may border on being simplistic, and for that I apologize. This would be a good time to remind Communio Sanctorum subscribers and anyone listening to this that I am what may be called a conservative evangelical pastor of a non-denominational church whose primary focus of ministry is the verse-by-verse expository teaching and preaching of the Bible. I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture and seek to cultivate a thoroughly biblical worldview. Part of that worldview is to not only cleave to truth as revealed in the Bible, but to exemplify the character of Christ in my words and actions. He was, as John says in the first chapter of his gospel, full of truth and grace. The legacy of the gospel is that we also are to be filled by that fullness. So while I must, for the sake of conscience, speak the truth, I must also do so in love. Therefore, I apologize for the times past in Communio Sanctorum episodes when my joviality has been unkind, when, for the sake of a couple of yucks, I've demeaned others. That is definitely not consistent with the character of Christ, who died to remove shame. Now, with that said, what follows could be found offensive to some because it upholds a biblical morality in regard to sexual ethics and gender distinctions. I do not apologize for that, because it's not I who's offending. It's God's word, as historically understood and applied by the church. And now let's get to it. Wherever the Bible was read and studied, human beings were understood as being created in the image of God, and as the creation account in Genesis makes clear, that meant that they were made male and female. The first man and woman were placed in an idyllic setting, were naked, and because they were innocent, they were without shame. God himself officiated at their garden wedding, then announced that the goal of their union was to become one flesh. You don't have to be a genius to realize that it was God's original plan for human beings to enjoy a rich and rewarding sex life, all within the marriage relationship, and that marriage alone is the proper place for the act of sex. Just as the Christians who arrived in Rome found a low regard for human life, they also encountered a shocking moral depravity in regard to sex. Immorality was everywhere, an integral part of pagan culture. The Apostle Paul wrote of the Greco-Roman debauchery in Romans 1 when he said, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served what was created rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
We know what social conditions were like at the time the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire because of contemporary writers who described it. Juvenal, Ovid, and others recorded that sexual activity between men and women was promiscuous and depraved. The famous historian Edward Gibbon, whose epic tome, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, is considered the standard work on the subject, said that the breakdown in sexual morality began after the Punic Wars in 146 BC. By the second century, normal sexual intercourse and marital fidelity had all but disappeared. It wasn't just that adultery and fornication were common. People engaged in all kinds of bizarre sexual practices. What's more, they were brazen about it. Graffiti and iconic images of their bizarrity appears on columns, walls, and household items like oil lamps, bowls, cups, and vases. It's interesting that in the early years of the Roman Republic, the Romans considered the Greeks, who'd been the dominant civilizations just before them, to be morally corrupt. The Greeks exercised in the nude and practiced all forms of sexual license. The Romans shunned public nudity, and considered much of what the Greeks had done morally shameful. But as power and wealth flowed into Rome from their many conquests, they increasingly aped the older Greek practices. By the 2nd century AD, they were doing more and worse than the Greeks had even thought. Things were so bad at the turn of the millennium from the 1st century BC to AD that Augustus enacted a set of laws aimed at curbing people's addiction to illicit sex. The laws had little effect, as is to be expected when the only person to be punished for committing adultery was a woman. It was a terrible combination when people were on one hand obsessed with sex and on the other despised marriage. Marriage was at a low point because most were arranged. Social arrangements that aimed at one thing, securing one's place in a society where standing was everything. So men and women married with not an ounce of love or affection for one another, Couple that with no expectation of sexual fidelity on the part of either the husband or wife, and it was a formula for massive infidelity. In certain segments of Roman society, women were as debauched as the men. Some women pursued sexual liaisons with every notable public figure they could, gladiators, politicians, actors, and comedians. The Roman satirist Juvenal wrote about these liaisons. The church father Tertullian wrote a treatise on proper conduct by Christians living in the debauched empire. In a treatise titled Concerning Shows, he warned believers away from the theater because the plays enacted there were ribald and blatant live pornography. Ovid wrote that normal heterosexual sex had turned into brutal sadomasochism. That had become the new normal. As the debauchery evolved from decade to decade, it grew progressively worse, as sexual sin almost always does. Since slaves were mere property, both men and women began to use their young slaves as sex objects. Then, homosexuality became increasingly accepted, with older men making the object of their desire younger and then younger men and boys. Incest, a strict taboo for generations, was never openly accepted as normal, but it was quietly accepted for those who opted for it. Several emperors led the way. It was into this sexual maelstrom that Christians came with a radically different sexual ethic. Only sex between a husband and a wife was acceptable before God. And Hebrews 13 verse 4 made it clear 
when it said, quote, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, unquote. For Christians, sex between a husband and a wife was an expression of mutual love and intimacy. It wasn't purely selfish gratification. In truth, the Apostle Paul made a mind-blowing statement when in 1 Corinthians 7, he said that a husband and wife owed one another sexual satisfaction. Now, to a culture that legally treated women as the property of their husbands, that was astounding. For most in the Greco-Roman world, a wife was merely a social convention by which one raised legitimate heirs for the estate and family name. But for pleasure and fun, well, you had an affair, or many. And since a wife didn't expect her husband to be faithful, or really even check up on her, she also had lovers. So what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church was nothing short of astounding. And if you know anything about Corinth, then you know that's saying something. As bad as things were all over the empire, Corinth was considered by most as being really bad. Imagine the casino owners, showgirls, and sex workers of Las Vegas saying, yeah, Corinth is really a morally nasty place, and you get an idea of how bad it really was. Yet there was a church there in Corinth, and Paul told the Christians that they were to take all that sexual energy and focus it in the husband-wife relationship where it belonged. He even warned them about thinking that abstaining from sex somehow pleased God or made them more spiritual. He said that a husband owed his wife sexual satisfaction and vice versa. The only time they could abstain was during a short time to devote themselves to fasting. But he said that when the fast was over, they were to get to it again. Hey, listen, I'm not making this stuff up. You can read 1 Corinthians 7 for yourself. It's all right there. While most skeptics scoffed at the Christian commitment to sexual purity, a few commended them. Galen, a Greek physician of the second century, thought that the Christian commitment to fidelity in marriage set them apart as noble. The fruit of healthy, love-filled marriages that shaped happy families began to have a dramatic impact on their neighbors. People thought Christians odd for their commitment to fidelity, but they couldn't argue with the obvious love and devotion that Christian couples had for each other. They began to reason, sex is fun, but what my soul craves is love. Yes, I want pleasure, but what I need is significance, and it's only a committed relationship that's going to scratch that itch. Unrestrained sex began to be regarded as not inevitable. People could, in fact, reign in their passions and lusts. Well, look, the Christians are doing it by the thousands, and surprise, surprise, they are way happier than the pagans. As the Christian ethic regarding sex gained traction, they told how Jesus had warned about lust in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that even if a man looks longingly and lustfully on a woman other than his wife, well, he's committed adultery in his heart. It wasn't just an overt act of sex that was prohibited. Christian sexual morality went further. It was about total marital fidelity to one's spouse that included even one's thought life. Unbelievers began to realize that Christianity wasn't just some kind of moralism. It wasn't prudish asceticism. It enjoyed physical pleasure, but in the boundaries that God designed for it. It was an ethic that enhanced and enriched life, while the immorality they'd given themselves to before was degrading and life-quenching. Biblical sexual morality allows life to flourish while sin diminishes the quality of life. One of the ways that we can see the influence of Christianity in honoring marriage 
is in the beauty and solemnity of the wedding ceremony. In Greco-Roman culture, it was a small affair without much to do. And marriage had fallen to such a low state by the turn of the millennium that most weddings were more farce than ceremony. Christians changed that. Specifically, it was Christian women that changed that. They took to heart Jesus' elevation of women and embraced their calling as redeemed daughters of God. As wives and mothers, they gladly took hold of their calling to raise godly children and saw the wedding ceremony as the commencement of that. They demanded that the ceremony be reverent and solemn. Their commitment worked slowly to affect a sea change in the way that all society viewed marriage and weddings. Christian women took a courageous and heroic stand. The pagan Libanius couldn't help but express his admiration when he said, quote, What women these Christians have! Unquote. Along with the wanton and debauched heterosexual immorality of Greco-Roman society was its acceptance of homosexuality, and not the plain two adults of the same sex variety. Pederasty and pedophilia was common where an adult man had sex with a boy between the ages of 12 and 16. In fact, pederasty was the usual form of homosexuality. Several Roman writers comment on this. Pederasty declined and ultimately failed in its grip on Roman society for the same reason that heterosexual immorality declined, because of the sanctifying influence of Christianity. Christians didn't stage campaigns calling homosexuality wrong any more than they did for adultery or or fornication. They simply showed a more excellent way that won the argument by the superiority of their lifestyle. That being the case, in the modern return of the rise of sexual immorality, homosexuality, and the turn towards the acceptance of same-sex marriage, the popularity of the Fifty Shades literary porn for soccer moms, and the plague of internet porn with the commensurate explosion of child pornography and sex crimes against children, well, reason moves us to conclude that it's the failure of Christians to demonstrate to their culture the superiority of the Christian sexual and marriage ethic. We don't need campaigns against same-sex marriage. What we need are Christian husband and wives to love and serve each other, to work for each other's delight in the raising of happy, healthy families. That's hard to do when the divorce rate among those calling themselves Christians is little better than the wider culture. And it's impossible when a church guy cheats on his wife or a church gal steps out on her husband. Earlier, I said that the moral excellence of early Christians commended them to many of their non-Christian peers. While that's true, it's certainly not the whole story. The sexual purity of Christians moved others to hate them and accuse them of trying to subvert society. Why, those dangerous Jesus followers are fiddling with centuries of tradition. Keep that up and the gods will be ticked. Who knows what wrath might be brewing, ready to fall on everyone's head for allowing the Christians to get away with their narrow sexual rules. And what's this silliness about loving my wife? Well, you Christians are hazardous social revolutionaries. Honestly, in some places of the empire, it was arguments like that that led to persecutions, and Christians were put to death. For what? For loving their wives and staying sexually faithful to them. Well, here we are 1,800 years later, and the wheel has turned once more. The Christian sexual ethic that won out because it was proven to be vastly superior to the pagan ethic 
the Christian sexual ethic that won out because it was proven to be vastly superior to the pagan ethic. The the Christian honoring of the sanctity of marriage and sex that transformed society for the better is being rapidly swept away in a re-embrace of humanistic paganism. The failure isn't the Gospels, nor is it the overwhelming power of immorality and sin. The age grows dark when the light goes out. Sing like never before Oh my soul Worship your holy name Jesus I will Worship your holy name Worship your holy name